Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. And I'm here as always with David Scott. Paul, it is fantastic to be back after a break off, so uh, very, uh, very happy to be back. Uh, our guest on the show this week is someone who is a well-known and very strong personality on finance Twitter, uh, but also somebody who, um, to our listeners who are smart enough to not be on Twitter, should be a real treat as a guest. Uh, we should have a show packed full of no-nonsense insights. Our guest is Ken Vexler, a Sydney cider who now runs an asset management firm called Acumen Management in London. He's got a great office there in Mayfair. Ken has fairly blunt opinions on a lot of things, um, but like some of our guests in the past, he also has real skin in the game. Uh, and we're looking forward to the chat. I must admit, my knuckles are a bit white uh, getting ready for this. So welcome, Ken. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, we are going to talk about cynicism. Uh, we are going to talk about some of the things that uh, currency traders wished that everybody else understood. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about central banking uh, around the world. Uh, and we're going to talk about the Australian outlook. It'll be great to get Ken's uh, fresh pair of eyes. Um, you know, he's in London, but he's visiting Sydney. And we're lucky to have him on the show. Um, so we'll talk about his perspective on Australia. But I want to quickly touch on something big that happened today. We are recording on Thursday. Uh, there was a big beat in the jobs data, Dave. Uh, there was. And Westpac, 45 minutes later, said the RBA is going to cut rates. They did. They were giving you plenty of signs, in my opinion. They're uh, being very, uh, not pessimistic about the economy, but certainly uh, a lot more subdued in their views compared to like, you know, what the consensus would be. Uh, talking about uh, sub-trend growth, unemployment rising very uh, you know, quite substantially over the course of this year, um, inflation remaining low, all the sort of ingredients that you expect for someone to go and cut rates, but they're all waiting for the communication from the RBA to go and you know, tell them the signal that, you know, that they thought a rate cut was going to be. And then lo and behold, the RBA has gone, uh, gone neutral last week. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, Westpac's decided to go and slice 50 basis points off their cash rate forecast. Uh, Ken, this is a, it's a pretty big call, isn't it? Like, I mean, you, you have a lot of very particular opinions about the way the banks go about things, but, uh, well, the Australian banks go about things, but saying there's going to be 50 basis points cut in is a big deal, right? Um, it is. It is a big call. And I think the extent to which they perceive the death of this economy is probably overdone. I mean, if they are correct in their estimates, then yeah, 50 basis points may be warranted, but they are most definitely not correct in my view. Um, I think the RBA is loathed to cut rates any, any lower than they are here. And what, and I'm surprised to get this out of Bill Evans considering, you know, he's fairly astute or has been over the years, but I think what most people fail to realise is that uh, the RBA is far more keen and far more reliant on pushing the currency lever rather than the rates lever. So. That's the beauty of having a freely, freely floating currency. You will allow it via jawboning and intimation that you may cut rates or you're looking a bit, you know, bit dovish and whatnot. You'll allow the currency to do a fair chunk of the work. Um, and I think the RBA is more than happy to let that happen and will probably look to signal that. So I think Westpac calling 50 basis points over, what, six months? That's a bit rich. I want to talk about... Um Part of what you said there is just being kind of cynical about, you know, the whole story about this, which is you can read it anywhere. There's a long list of uh, uh, reporters, commentators, etc., who say that Australia is going to hell in a handbasket. One of the things that you were calling out there is that you were a bit cynical about some of this stuff. Before we get into talking about some of the details of economics and etc., I want to talk about cynicism. 
right? It's a bit of a brand for you, uh, uh, Ken, right? So, David, I've known you for a long time, right? We've worked side by side for years. Uh, and one of the things that I think that both of you have in common uh, is... Both um, good one, looking, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, not only are you handsome, uh, but you're also deeply cynical, um, both of you. Um, so look, um, learning to be a bit relaxed about what's going on in markets, right? So if something happens that maybe it's actually, that seems like bad news, maybe it's not the end of the world. Um, so we've met in, in person a few times, Ken, over the years, uh, and I've been uh, very surprised that you actually have a method um, behind all of this cynicism, right? So can you talk about like the cynicism that people might see from you? Um, and what's really, what's it really all about? Well, I'll be honest with you. I mean, up until you mentioned the fact that, you know, you perceive me and, and generally maybe I may be perceived as cynical, I wouldn't have considered myself quite, you know, all that cynical at all. Um, I'm not going to toe the line that I'm a realist, I'm not a cynic and I'm not an optimist. That's bollocks. Um, but I don't know. I just I think there's just a lack of objectivity, and I, I generally out there, um, and I, I I hate being sucked into all of that. So I'll call it as I see it, fairly simply, um, and I'm not going to get loaded up in all the all the nonsense and all the fanfare that goes around everything. Like not everything is amazing out there, and and it's all right to say that it's not amazing yet. You know. So I, I suppose that's my base case, and something like you know you know the you know the quote about the Tyson quote about getting punched in the face, right? that everything's fine, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. 23 years in markets, my default is getting punched in the face, <laughs> right? So it's not about planning for, you know, whatever. My default is that invariably you will get kicked in the head. So get ready to get kicked in the head and see how you come up from that. And that's it. So I don't know that I'm necessarily cynical. Well, maybe I am, I don't know. But, you know, that, that's, that's the way I see it. Dave, one of the things you talk about a, a lot is noise. Mm. Um, there's lots of rubbish out there that's meaningless, that uh, has absolutely no bearing on people's lives or particularly a currency trading or rates trading or equities trading or whatever you are dabbling. Uh, but there's lots of like no headlines that will be out there or like no news that will be you know, made to be really big, but not necessarily will have actually any impact. And that's something that you need to uh, you know, be able to go and shut out from time to time, uh, particularly if you're, if you're running money, to be able to go and actually you know, stick to your own here's what my plan is, here's what my methodology is, here's how I go and execute, rather than like, you know, listening to, you no, know, so-and-so said this and this has come here, then all of a sudden, if you listen to all the noise, you know, in a given day, you'd be like bullish, bearish, somewhere in between, you know, within a, the space of 30 minutes, rather than like, you know, an entire day. So sometimes it's, uh, you've just got to go and pull back and think about, you no, know, what are the big term ramifications of what this news is? Does it have any impact? And a lot of the time it doesn't. But some of the arm wrestling that we might do about a story, right, uh, or about something that's happening in the world, right, might be around, I think this matters, and you'll say, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Mm. Uh, and one of the classic cases there is, is Brexit, right, that it, you know, you and I disagree fundamentally on this, that I think Brexit is a really big deal, and you think, look, they might leave the European Union, and, uh, but will it actually matter? Yeah, of course. No, in, in terms of a hard Brexit, it will definitely go and obviously hurt the uh, people in the United Kingdom. There's, uh, there's no doubt about that, in my opinion. Uh, it also going to hurt quite a few people in uh, the European Union. Uh, but for the rest of the world, uh, even if a hard Brexit does occur, my view is that it's a rounding error in terms of what it will mean for the global economy. I, unless there's some sort of systematic financial crisis that envelops because of that, my view is that, no, it will happen. No, 
UK will fall into recession. Uh, no, there'll be lots of headlines that were written out of Fleet Street and, and the like, but no, day-to-day life, people won't even really notice it in the rest of the world. Ken, you're on the ground there. Um, with watching this happen, you're in the financial services industry in, in London, and there's a lot of banks, a lot of companies restructuring themselves, pulling people out of... Yep. Um, what, what's your take on it? Like, do you think this uh, I think it's fair enough that they're doing all of that. I think forever and a day, all of those shops, all those banks and investment firms and whatnot will maintain a presence of sorts in London or in the UK, irrespective of whether it's a hard Brexit, soft Brexit, by virtue of the fact that there will still be some element of business done and it depends on the legislation that then evolves from whatever exit it is. But the cold hard reality of it is, is that, yeah, every shop has moved at least some part and, and in some instances a large part of their business out. Um, and that's because they need to still be able to do business with other members of the European Union. Being sat in London, they can't. It's all about contingency planning. And I mean, the Tories have made it pretty clear they have absolutely zero clue what they're doing, right? Yeah. We're now about seven minutes shy of the 29th of March. And? And we... Well, there is no plan. I mean, that, that's, that much is obvious. Um, so as a consequence, if you're running, you know, JP Morgan, Goldies or Deutsche or whoever it may be, yeah, you want to be setting up shop in Dublin, Frankfurt, Paris. I mean, you've obviously, they've obviously already got stuff there, but they need to ramp up because of legislation. So, it, look, it's going to be uh, super interesting. I, I think you know, what we're staring down here is there's going to be a delay. Um, I do think one of the fascinating things is what's happened this week in, uh, with all these parties leaving, mm. sorry, these MPs leaving uh, the Labour Party in particular, yeah. and to set up an independent group. It's um, a movement, think, Paul. Do, it's a movement. It's a movement. <laughs> I've, 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 I've had bowel movements that are roughly as exciting as this current movement. Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, from my perspective, I think, okay, fine. Timing-wise, it is the absolute worst piece of timing they could have chosen to get it done. Fine, they've done it now. Who cares? My, my question, and I've been travelling, so I haven't been keeping as close an eye on it. My question is, what... You know, what's this in aid of? What do, what do they hope to achieve, right? Uh, is this Brexit strictly Brexit related? Is this broadly, more broadly speaking to internal party politics, both in, in the Labor Party and the Tories? Because we've had three or four Tory members just resign and join this movement. Um, what are they hoping to achieve? Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, and the Lib Dems are just absolutely flaccid. They're, they're useless, right? So it's not like the Lib Dems are all of a sudden going to team up with this independent group or the independent movement, whatever they're calling themselves, and actually become a force for anything, especially when we're, you know, five weeks shy of the 29th of March. And a second referendum's not on the table, nor is it likely to be. Uh, You mentioned the fact earlier that there is a chance that this will be delayed. Fine. Uh, The delta on that's pretty low. The reason being that for it to be delayed, somebody's got to ask for it. To, to be delayed, to extend Article 50. No one's asking the question. So we're forever hurtling towards this deadline. Do you think they're going to... There's a, what is the likelihood, do you think, in percentage terms, that they'll crush out? Uh, I think it's a lot higher than most people would like to think. Uh, I genuinely... Like, I'll put it this way. About three weeks ago, I probably would have said... Well, longer, maybe six weeks ago, I would have said, yeah, they'll, they'll fudge something as, as we get closer. But six weeks have elapsed and we're now that much closer and nothing's been changed, nothing's been fudged. There's, no, there's not even an intimation that there might be a chance. The European Union has basically said, look, 
come back and have a chat and we might some like so they've at least shown you know some element of malleability that they could be prepared to do something but what what have what have the tories come back with what's teabag come back with nothing teabag yeah <laughs> i mean you know and and it's just and I understand why she's come back with nothing because the ability to draw any sort of consensus within the UK Parliament, irrespective of whether it's just complete fantasy and take that back to Brussels or something potentially, you know, negotiable, is is it's not there. They can't form a consensus on anything. Mm. So she's got nothing to go back with. Yeah. Um, so who knows? Um, uh, we are definitely hurtling towards it. I can't believe that it's this late in February. Um, so it's like five weeks, something like that. Europeans love a deadline. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But no. Well, actually, you have an interesting perspective on this because you were trading through the European debt crisis. As as you as, would have been obviously. But yeah. um, no, I always found that there was always this last-minute solution, this big hurrah that was always like, you know, a solution to you know, the problem that everyone had been like, you know, fretting about for for months. And then it was like you no know, days. Then it was hours. And all of a sudden, there'll be some late-night meeting. I'll be sitting there. And it'll be three o'clock in the afternoon in Sydney, and these people will be emerging from a, a meeting room in Europe. So it'll be like, you no, know, three o'clock in the morning. And it's like, oh, we've made an announcement, and like everything will be like solved. So uh, maybe it's uh, very complacent, and as Ken admitted, it's, uh, there, there seems to be a lot of complacency out there, and you know, probably not pricing for a hard, hard Brexit. But you know, I just can't help but feel like you know, the same thing will happen over and over again. It just seems to happen. You saw it during the uh, the GSC with the other uh, TARP program in the uh, in the states. Yeah, I I I'd probably beg to differ. I, I take your point with regard to the debt crisis. Mm. There's a significant difference here, and 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 it being that in the debt crisis, it was just a matter of where where can we come up with some dodgy numbers and make them fit into a spreadsheet that everyone's going to be able to sign off on. Fine. We saw that about seven minutes ago with the Italian budget, right? 2.4 became 2.397, whatever, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden everyone's happy. Tick. Brussels, yeah, tick, job done. Reality, nothing moved. You shifted something from the left column to the right. This, it's not just about numbers. It's not about budgets. This is about custom union, freedom of movement, immigrant, well, all, all, everything that was ever written on the side of a bus, basically. And you, you just simply can't fudge that. I mean, the bare basics of what the EU is set up on is, is what, the three, four principles, right? They're not negotiable. So that's, to me, why this is unlike, you know, what... And, and as I said, up until about six weeks or maybe a bit longer, I, I could have perceived a fudge. God knows what it would have looked like. Some fancy legalese on a one-page job done. We're, we're past that. There's, um, I remember uh, when I saw you in London, um, was it last year? Yeah. And I, 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 I remember it was a kind of moment of uh, like clarification for me where you said we were walking down the street and you said, look at all this. Um, you know, we, we were around, you know, Mayfair or Oxford mm. Street. And the place is looking fantastic. The weather's gorgeous, you know. Um, London is really looking great at the moment. And you said, look at it all. Like... They're, they've got access to half a billion people, a market of half a billion people, free movement of skills and capital, and they're about to quit. piss it all away. I think was was the word I was looking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, and yeah. here we are. And I think, look, I think I think it's just going to be a, literally a generational loss for the UK, for liter- in in the most literal sense. People in you know the teenagers and whatnot, they're gone for the next twenty odd years, right? Never mind what the economy is going to do. And, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a doomsday. I'm not a tin hat wearer. I don't really care. But the cold hard reality is that that's, that's really what they're setting themselves up for. Um, 
want to talk quickly about currency trading. Uh, so both of you have, you know, trade rates, currencies. Um, so um, I think one of the things that, like, so there's lots of our listeners do follow currencies very carefully, um, but also um, lots don't. Um, and I thought it'd be really good opportunity with both of you here, hand it over to you guys and say, look, what are the things that you reckon people, you wished people understood? <laughs> Ken, you talked about getting punched in the face. What are the key things that you think uh, people, people you, should understand? About what do you currency? reckon, Scotty? Your, yours, mine, shag? Start with that. <laughs> I know. If you see a promotion involves a celebrity that is trying to go and endorse a particular trading product, you're pretty certain that you'll lose your money straight away. Yeah. Um, that's probably a good one. Um, from my limited time, I found that uh, if you want to reduce your stress levels uh, and actually become more of a systematic trader... Um, become a plumber? No, become a plumber. I, I would say my, my, my personal view is going lengthen out your trade trading time as well. Mm. Uh, don't go and try and uh, job the market, particularly in FX, because you don't know who's on the bid and the offer either um, yeah. at any time. You could be trying to go and fight an absolute you know, uh, unwinnable battle and then uh, cause a lot of anxiety and, and, and whatnot. So um, there are two things that, uh, that I'd uh, advise people. If, if, if stress is one thing, uh, if, you, if you can't go and uh, eliminate uh, anxiety and emotion out of it is probably not the thing you'd want to go and do. Uh, talk about yours and mine. Yours and mine. So yours is when you're selling something. Mine is when you're buying something. So essentially, like most markets or over-the-counter markets are concerned, there's, a, there's always a price maker and a price taker. Uh, by the very obvious definition, a price maker will make you a price uh, and they will quote you a bid offer spread. Bid is where you can sell it, offer is where you can buy it. If you're happy to buy it at whatever offer the price maker's showing, you lift him and it's mine. And if you hit him on the bid and sell it, it's yours. Uh, um, what about how you left? How you left. Now, th this sort of goes back to what Scotty just briefly alluded to. How you left is, uh, it's all to do with, with flows. So basically, again, as, as a price maker, you're obliged by virtue of your job to make prices. So if you sat at, I don't know, any one of the major banks, you're looking at you know, various hedge funds hitting you for prices, corporates and the like, right? Um, what you don't generally tend to get a sense of is how large the overall flow is, how big the, you know, how big the overall deal that they need to get done is. And more to the point, you can, well, you know with absolute certainty, you're not the only bank they're asking for a price. So basically, <laughs> somebody will ask you in, I don't know, 100 Aussie, right? You know, show me a two-way and 100 Aussie, you show... Uh, they, they lift you, right? Okay, you're fine. They ask you again another 100 Aussie. You show them again, you probably widen it out or tilt it because you know that they're going to hit you. They lift you. Uh, all of a sudden, they ask you again, you've done 300 Aussie. You're, you're sitting there wondering what the hell's going on. Market's moving away. They're hitting other banks doing the absolute same thing. You can't cover anything because you're making prices and, and you can't back it out because the market's shifting. And then some smart ass is going to ask you how you left. Right? meaning anything left on this flow, and he's probably sprayed the street with a yard worth of business. Right? You've seen 300 of it, someone else has seen 300, someone else has seen bits and pieces, and, and there you're done. So in those instances, that's where how you left comes into play. Nice. Um, the yard is a billion as well. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and a buck is, is one million. So yeah, there we go. Um, and what about uh, 
stops. So one of the things that we often see in Asia, right, where there is much less liquidity. Oh, the Swiss French stop right on Monday mornings. Yeah. They're always fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, this, uh, you've got uh, stops have been left over the weekend. So some uh, some clients have just you know got a position on, and then all of a sudden, like no, it's very thin conditions. So rather than having to go and uh, maybe uh, expel a yard to go and trigger these stops, you might have to go and expel maybe you know. 10, uh, 10 bucks to go and do it. Then all of a sudden you can, you can go and trigger all these stops. You can go and run them up. So they've got to go and cover their positions. And then all of a sudden you can sit there and just go, like, okay, I'll, I'll take that back now. And then uh, it happens all the time. We saw it last week in particular. It was, a little, it was last week or the week before, there was a crazy stop run that was done in the Swiss franc in Asian times. And I don't know, usually in Asia, mm, Swiss franc mm, doesn't mm. even move. No, it does, <laughs> doesn't move in normal circumstances these days. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually, I had a chat probably about three years ago, not two years ago, with uh, someone that was the former treasurer of, well, a sizable corporate here. Mm -hmm. And by sizable, I mean, they, they fly planes okay. and they like they own those planes and it's an aviation, it's Qantas. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> and uh, he, all he wanted to know from me was, is it true that that stops get targeted and run. And I said, yeah. and, and all I asked of him was, <laughs> how do you think Macquarie made so much money in such a short period of time before the PPP template that they came up with? How do you think that happened? So basically, if your, if your traders are stupid enough to leave hard stops, you can expect those hard stops to get hit in exactly that thin liquidity because when liquidity is that thin, it doesn't take much to ramp the market. And if they're close, they just trade through and oh, what do you know? Market's gone through, you're done, right? Yeah. Um, so moral of the story is if you can afford not to, don't leave stops. This is not trading advice. This is not uh, adequate risk management. But, yeah, stops get taken out because there's always a bigger fish out there to drive the market. And this is one of the things that we see often, particularly with the Australian dollar, um, we see it in the afternoons here late in the day. Uh, London traders getting in. And, Dave, you often talk about how they're testing where the stops are. Oh, they are. Oh, they're reversing Asia's mistake. <laughs> some, yeah. some of the time. What has what Asia been doing? You can just tell sometimes they're coming like eggs and beans. It's like, yeah, yours. And then all of a sudden the Aussie will shear off a cliff or like, no, uh, dolly yen, whatever, whatever really targets. But no, you are, you operate in the, uh, the, the time zone where there's the most liquidity and uh, yeah. most flows. So yeah. uh, the world is your oyster over in, uh, in Europe. For the most part. But I mean, exactly that. Look, when liquidity is that thin, it's easy to run stops. And Generally, I find it quite surprising. I mean, it's obvious where stops are. Like, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You look at an intraday chart, and it's pretty obvious where, if somebody's gone long or short or something, it's pretty obvious where they're going to put their stop. Yeah. Now, invariably, by that definition, don't put your stop where it's that blatantly obvious. Yeah, right. Like, maybe have the trade size a touch smaller so you can wear the stop being a bit further away. So I'd rather... And I do, I trade with stops. Anyone that manages money properly has stops, right? Um, be they hard or soft, but you know that you're going to have to stop out of a trade at some point. Um, and for me, I, if I ever get stopped out, and it happens plenty of times, I would rather know that I'm getting stopped out because I'm just horribly wrong and the market just kept going the other way. And so I didn't just get stopped out on a fluke or because it was, you know, somebody hunted out or the market was thin and I got done. I'd rather know that I was just genuinely wrong probably wore an, an extra 10 bips out of it because the stop was further away. Mm. But then the market ran another 100 bips and well, so be it, right? It could have been a lot worse off. Yeah. So I think the moral of the story is, look at a chart, see what's obvious, don't be cannon fodder.
If, if you want a prime example right now, uh, not in currency space, but no, kind of currency space, uh, gold. Gold's uh, currently, in US dollar terms, is sitting right at the top of a, you know, a downtrend that's been in for, oh, sorry, an uptrend has been actually you know, in for many, many years. Um, and you can just tell that everyone is watching this level and if it manages to go and breach that level, I can only imagine how much is actually located above that. So it could be, I'm not, once again, no trading advice, but uh, one of those things where you know, you know where the stops are probably gonna be laid up there for anyone who's been trying to go in short, uh, looking for the deflationary trade and everything else. Uh, might be in for some pain if it was to go and breach that level. Yeah, I have to say, um, you know, I, I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not ma a mathematically minded person, um, uh, and I'm uh, like, you know, this is I, I'm a journalist and editor rather than um, uh, you know a, a technical analyst uh, by by any means. But I can also look at a chart, and you can see where um, you've you've got some problems coming, um, you know, without any training. Uh, it's not as complicated uh, as I think often. Sometimes you get these like wild papers from Goldman, um, you know. You should be looking for the uh, XIV trade back uh, in February last year. The, uh, for, for inverse uh, inverse volatility, everyone was talking about volatility, but no one was actually focusing on the uh, derivative you could go and use. That's right. Uh, okay, we're gonna take a short break and we'll be back and we'll talk about central banking and Australia. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here, as always, with David Scott. And our guest on the show this week is Ken Vexler, uh, who runs Acumen Management in London. Okay, uh, central banking, uh, Ken, um, the Fed. Um, do you think that um, uh, the, um, so much has happened? Um, I remember a few years ago, the Fed was easily the most important lever in the world economy. Uh, is that still the case? Um, in many ways, they're probably even more important than they were a, a few years ago. Um, the, yeah, they're certainly important. Look, I'll, I'll start off any further discussion by saying Jerome Powell is useless, sort of circa tits on a bull useless. Um, he, he started off well, um, but the delivery of his messaging and more to the point, What's behind that messaging has just been nonsensical. Um, it just seems that the market is now largely dictating to the Fed rather than the other way around. Now, I know I'll get all manner of, you know, Fed sycophants on Twitter telling me, oh, the Fed's always right and, you know, everyone else that criticises the Fed or any central bank is wrong. No, I was a big fan of Janet Yellen, despite her voice. Um, Bernanke did a, a good job considering circumstances. Greenspan's a different animal altogether. But... Jay Powell is, he's just, he's all wrong. Um, and I think where, where the Fed's, uh, the Fed's stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? So uh, there was a massive fiscal sugar high that's run its course. Uh, we are genuinely late cycle in the US. Uh, they've raised a su sufficient number of times to this point. And the data, and they've always been data dependent, and the data is now telling them that, you know what, fellas, hold back which is fine on the rate side of things. Their big mistake, as far as I'm concerned, was mentioning anything to do with balance sheet runoff, right? Um, the fact that, you know, okay, you could have said that Powell had a misstep when he quoted, you know, being close to neutral in terms of the, the rate setting path and we're approaching, we might go smalls over it, whatever, you know, all of that, fine. He misspoke, leave him be. But then when he, turns your when, when he turned his attention to 
the balance sheet and their, and their essentially the roll-off of QE and what they're going to be doing, being on autopilot, well, that was just stupid. Uh, and then five minutes later having to turn all of that back and, and even go further and say, actually, we're going to be quite flexible and you know what, we might end the runoff a lot sooner than and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, and all of this happened within five weeks. So you haven't even had data prints to justify a massive change of, of tack that, that he's done. That he's directed. Yeah, to. what you have had, you've had the stock market and rates markets react massively, more stocks than, than rates, and something, be it that or Trump or a combination of or whatever, has put the fear of God into Powell and or some members of the, the FOMC. So question for you, right? So you've been doing this for a couple of decades, right? So, and in that time, a couple of things have come along. One, new central banking policy tools, right? So uh, QE, um, uh, to give it a name, um, but also forward guidance, right? So, you know, it's the inflation targeting era, but forward guidance and how the bank, the central, any central bank, communicates to the market, um, you know, it's beyond the policy tool, right? So, you know, so like you talked about uh, earlier on, we talked about uh, the RBA and you talked about like they can, even them just saying that we might cut rates, push down the currency, mm. right? Um, and they know that that's the impact yeah. and they want, they want that to be the case. They want the currency a little bit weaker so it can bring in some inflation and, right? So, in terms of the market pushing the Fed around, but isn't that kind of the outcome that they would be looking for anyway? So that they kind of meet, like, you know, because he's trying to use Look, forward but, guidance. Yeah. But I think this is no longer about forward guidance. And, and I take your point, but if that genuinely is the case, you want to do it over a longer time frame. You don't want to do it over the space of what literally amounted to five weeks, right? I mean, that was insane. And forward guidance was born out of the fact that the uniqueness of what QE was. Obviously, the world had never seen that sort of monetary stimulus um, and uh, the world hadn't seen zero rates, hadn't seen in, in the instance of Europe and various other places, Japan, negative rates. And so, and the central banks as well as governments and governments in the absence of being able to do anything on a fiscal basis, austerity was the, was the poster child of economic reform. Um, it was all left, you know, the central banks were given a hospital pass. Now, they knew full well that they couldn't get off the zero lower bound. They couldn't reverse QE anytime soon. They begrudgingly became aware in the last couple of years that the Phillips curve is just nonsense and broken and therefore inflation and unemployment don't necessarily signal anything and you're not going to get much inflation. So forward guidance came about as a function of, listen, we know you're all screaming for higher rates, normalisation, etc., but we can't. But as a means by which to... Uh, allay any sort of concerns or, or you know, let's say hold, hold your hands a little bit. We're going to introduce this notion of forward guidance to give you a better insight as to how our mindset works, what we're looking at, and therefore... Yeah, they introduced the dots. And- exactly, right? Um, and, you know, there were good points, bad points about it, but the market sort of came to terms with it, and that's fine. This is no longer forward guidance. I mean, this is a Fed that's, you know, what, six hikes into a cycle? Five hikes into a cycle. Eight, I think. Is it, is it eight at this point? Uh, yeah, no, give, it, give it take. But yeah. I mean, a significant number of hikes, admittedly over a, a decent chunk of time. 
And they've laid out all along, because, I mean, these hikes have come over about a three-year window. They've laid out all along the framework by which they'll be hiking, right? So they've, they've done, you know, 250-odd basis points of hikes over that three-year window as the economy's been doing whatever it's been doing. And this sort of goes back to what, how we, you know, what we started talking about. The absolute lack of objectivity within markets and certainly market participants means that everyone's like, well, you know, what now? I mean, you've got, surely they're going to keep hiking. Surely they're going to keep running the balance sheet off. or, or what? No, because nobody actually takes a step back, takes a deep breath and has a look at, well, what's, what's really going on? You know? So you talk about the lack of objectivity, but in, in your view then, what do markets have wrong? I think markets, not necessarily wrong, but I think the expectation that the US would continue to grow north of 3.5% ad infinitum and that the Fed could keep hiking rates <laughs> till we got to like 4% and, and, in, and unemployment would you know, meaningfully go below a three-handle or whatever in the US. I mean, it's nonsense, right? Like, this is the biggest bull run the economy's had. And, and what's, it, what's it coming on the back of? It's coming on the back of a GFC 10 years ago where... You know, you had the most fecal matter swishing around in a toilet bowl that was desperate of a flush. And instead of that, they just added more crap on top, bit of sanitizer, can't smell it, off you go. That's QE, by the way, in case you're wondering. So you've, you've manufactured a recovery and well played, job done, but you can't anticipate that that's just going to go on forever. You can't anticipate that every five minutes, the S&P is going to keep making all-time record highs. So the US returning to trend growth at 2.5%, thereabouts, I'll take that all day long, Ref. I mean, you know. We're talking about a little bit about forward guidance. Mario Draghi. Bless him. Love him. You love him? Love yeah. Him. I think is, he's good. Is he, is he out next year, is it? No, he's, this he's out year, this year. Yeah. this year. I was just going to ask, like, obviously, you probably just answered the question, but no, your feelings about no Mario Draghi. I know my personal view is that um, in a crisis era, he was probably like, no, the, the best person. that yep. you know, The way that he can go and manipulate the markets to go, you no. Know, get the message straight away without having to go and flip-flop. I've always found amazing. The, you know, whatever it takes moment, obviously, yeah. you know, going back in, I think, uh, 2012, 12, yeah, <clears throat> was just, that was one of those defining moments that's, you no know, In central banking. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those moments well, where... Well, not in football, mate, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ken. That's right, mate. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, Dragon's Out, Carney is going next year? Nine, uh, no, 20-odd, yeah, but, I mean, big deal. I mean, what, what, I, I, I don't think it really matters who runs a BOE these days. Right. Given what's going on, as we discussed, I mean, what, what's a BOE going to do? Yeah, yeah. The central bank cannot rescue that country, nor, nor do anything meaningful by way of staving off what's coming. Uh, David, the Bank of Japan, too, while we're, talk, while we're going down through our rating cards for various... Why have you given me the BOJ? Yeah, so one of your favourite things is when they have a meeting and they don't have a time for the announcement. <laughs> well, it is, yeah. What, 2019 and we're still sitting there, you know, twiddling your thumbs. It's like, you know, the announcement could come anytime. If there's no announcement, uh, uh, you'll, you'll, uh, or there's no change, you'll find out, you know, roughly about, you know, just after one o'clock, you know, given what time of the year it is. Then, uh, then you actually have banks who are doing analysis as the, you know, the longer it goes, you know, here's what's more likely going to occur, like, you know, the change in policy. It's just, oh. It's bollocks. Is, it, I think the word you're looking for is bollocks. Yeah. When was the last time they did anything on rates? Yeah, no, no, no going back, you know, they did the, uh, you know, kick you with your uh, yeah. control. That was, that was a couple of years back, but um, realistically, like, no, Corrodo, you know, he always visits the, uh, no, the parliament, goes to the diet, and then you know, sits there, and like, it's the same thing over and over again. And I still see headlines from other other groups that come down, like, you know, what Corrodo's saying. It's like, you know, 
Corroda's just got like a CD and he's just gone, no, and literally it's a CD because it can be that old, don't need like MP3 players. You just go for play and it just does the same thing over and over and over again. Now, Japan ain't going to be hiking rates for a long time. We're doing anything to tighten policy in a long, long time. Uh, I'm not going to say where I did meet him, but I did meet him once. Uh, oh, I know where you met him. And yeah, uh, well, okay. You I'm told me. Ex- you so, you told me extensively where you met him. Yeah, I met him. I met him in Davos. There like, it is. And he let me. <laughs> where, where was it again, mate? Like? Davos. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, sorry for even helping me my math. Yeah, right. we'll, we'll, put, we'll put a photo on Twitter and, uh, and make sure it's in the other uh, post for, uh, for the podcast. <laughs> Um, but so it only makes sense to just, you know, small group of people on financial Twitter, like, you know, wow, that is quite a photo, that group, and then anybody from Japan, because Mm. it's like getting a photo with Taylor Swift or something, Mm, right? mm, So, mm. you know, you you show them the photo and they're like, oh my God, what, really? Um, Yeah, so um, various central bankers, let's start talking about this place. Sure. How's the RBA going, Ken? Um, I've got to be careful what I say, genuinely. Um, the RBA is doing, I suppose, as best they can, uh, given the circumstances. I think uh, APRA at the RBA's behest has probably overstepped a little bit. Um, the macro-pru, again... Look, macro pru is not dissimilar to monetary policy in that it's a relatively blunt instrument, right? So the lag on the effects of whatever policy setting you apply can be not insignificant timing-wise, right? Given the underlying nature of what's happened in this, or what's been happening in in the Aussie housing market and the like, um, that presents a unique set of circumstances. I think right now we're witnessing, and okay, you can argue that the banks are crying foul because their, their net margins are lower. You know, it's all APRA's fault, macro proves too tight, the interest only nonsense and whatever else. Uh, okay, my heart bleeds, whatever. But there is an element of, okay, maybe it could be an opportunity to take a step back on the macro proof side of things. But again, as, as we spoke about... But the cut's I think, out of the bag there, right? Say again? The cut's out of the bag. Like yeah, it the is. is being felt. I mean, so. yeah, well, they, they've already cut these. So interest only is gone, interest only on caps. Investor loan uh, caps went, uh, investor credit uh, went, uh, you know, last year. Uh, but there's, no, now it's a crackdown on uh, you know, expenses and everything else, which I think everyone in, in mm, the right mm. mind thinks is probably a good thing. But you know, the, now the delays in actually getting a loan approved and to go and get credit flowing to the private sector who require it and you know, to go and function day to day is obviously you know, going to create a lot of problems, particularly you see in the moment what's going on in uh, the housing market, uh, building approvals, all that kind of stuff is... Uh, is very interesting and a lot of that comes back to you know in my opinion what's going on with how tight credit has become in terms of getting it out not actually like the restrictions but you know the timeliness of when it's required um so ken you're looking around right so uh, uh, you're here in 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 sydney um you grew up here but you've been watching the property boom from afar mm. um now you're back here uh, always interesting to hear somebody's you know a visitor's um, perspective on things. What do you, when you when you walk around sure. Sydney, what do you see? Um, so I'm I'm back on average pre- probably once a year. So I'm back roughly this time every year and for the last X number of years. Um, anecdotally, I see a marked difference this year from last, as opposed to 18 to 17. Right, 17. You know, the difference between 2017 2018 didn't really see much. I mean, you know, there there were. 
intimations that things are going to pot and whatever else, right? Now I'm probably seeing a bit more. Um, and what I mean by that, I, it's weird. And this, this could be a bit lengthy, so bear with me, right? I'm seeing a hell of a lot more menu log, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, all of that, which, to, and, and that might be an odd observation, but to me, it, it speaks to something else. It speaks to the fact that Australians have always been lazy, who cares? But it means that they're roughly spending the same money, but they're not physically going out to these various places that are making them their food. You might need the same amount of kitchen stuff, but you don't need the same amount of floor stuff at these restaurants, right? Uber Eats and Deliveroo take a fair chunk of change out of the proprietor for, yeah? They're prepared to still, the, the various restaurants are still prepared to forego that money just to get something through the door. And, and the gig economy, every second car I see on, on, on the road here is an Uber <laughs> because they have a sticker and you don't have that in London. But, you know, every second car is yeah, got. We a, have to have a rule about it here in Australia. Oh, do you? Okay, well, okay. So, so it makes it that so much. It took a thousand people to come up with that rule as well. Wow. <laughs> okay, so it makes it that much easier to spot, right? So the gig economy, and I hate that nonsense, but there is merit in it. And what, where I'm going with all this is that people are finally starting to feel the reverse of what the wealth effect here has been for the last twenty years, right? Uh, many people are leveraged, some are leveraged to the hilt, or some are leveraged even beyond that, having sat on property that's made them a lot of money and they've bought other properties as a consequence and whatever else. Rental yields are a bit softer, wages haven't really kept pace, although I think in the last six months we're seeing that actually reverse a bit, I think wages are starting to push. So people are cutting back in the sense that they finally, it occurs to them, oh bloody hell, I've got a mortgage to pay, mm -hmm. I've got credit card debt. Yeah. So they're thinking, well, Maybe one less Instagrammable post at the icebergs and a couple, couple fewer frocks or whatever it is. <laughs> and I'm going to stay in tonight, watch my Netflix at 20 bucks a month or whatever it is here. And, you know, maybe Instagram the dessert that Deliveroo brings me instead of whatever and actually pay my mortgage and, and not be concerned that next month, maybe if I'm out of a job or something goes wrong, I won't be able to cover that. So that and, and particularly like this thing of, 10 or 15 years ago, you might have expected, like in a higher inflation world, you might have expected that uh, the mortgage payments become easier over time. But in a low inflation world, that is not the case. Um, you know, you, you can't, it, it continues to eat up a significant proportion yeah, of, of your, of your income of or, or the same proportion of your income over time wow. if your wages aren't going up. Yeah. And then there are a lot of facets. Like, to this story overall, to the Australian story. My, my, one of my biggest bugbears, and maybe this is where you get your notion of cynicism from, is that even locally, domestically, and certainly internationally, people just perceive Australia in just such the wrong way. I mean, they, they perceive it as that, you know, Australia is beholden only to China, and so whatever China does is, is what's gonna happen here, and as a consequence, maybe a little bit, but not entirely. Um, prior to that, it was the carry trade where we had higher rates than most of the rest of the world. So you'd buy Aussie and sell whatever currency as a means by funding it and you sit on that and jobs are good. Well, we're not having that anymore. So invariably, there are all these reasons globally that everyone perceives to sell the Aussie. The, the, the housing market's going to explode, RBA's dovish, China's imploding, blah, blah. It's, yeah, all right. I remember trading the Aussie when it was sub 50. I, I paid 47 and a half cents 
you know, I, so I've been there. My first mortgage, the official rate was 17 and three quarter percent. So when rates here officially at the RBA one and a half and you go, man in the street pays, I don't know, what's he paying? Four, four and a half, five, depending. Hopefully not five. Okay. Yeah. Four, Otherwise you should refinance. Yeah, grants right, <laughs> but he pays four. Four, right, yeah. that's, that, For me, that's, that money is still free, right? Now, you, you're talking about, okay, Sydney is an, an, an exclusive case, but the housing market in Sydney, more or less conservatively, has grown about 10% every year for the last 10 years, at least, right? So we're talking about a housing market that goes from 10% growth to zero growth, and for maybe a couple of years goes to negative growth of, of minus 2%. Yeah, that's called economic rationalisation. It's also talking about a country that hasn't seen a recession, technical or otherwise, for 27 years. I was giving a presentation to a pension fund two days ago, right? And invariably, I was asked, well, what are your thoughts on the Aussie and, and, and the country and the economy and whatever else? And this is where I have to be very careful. And I was very careful in telling them this. I genuinely believe that a recession in this country is imminent, right? but so is the arrival of Haley's Common, right? It's going to happen. Now, the timeline to that is, for me, 12 to 18 months. It'll be a technical recession. The Aussie will go to about 68 cents. It might overshoot smalls. It'll stabilise. The RBA, if they cut, are utterly insane, right? They can, because, frankly, if they cut from one and a half... mean if they cut now or if they... It doesn't matter. If they cut in response to, because ultimately... They cut, let's say, 25 basis points. Some of the banks may pass that on. They may not. I mean, we've, we've seen plenty of times where they don't. They have other criteria by which to satisfy their own shareholders, the banks. So in real terms, are you helping the man in the street with his mortgage, her mortgage? Are you stimulating domestic demand? Are you facilitating the freer flow of capital back into the economy? No, it is diminishing marginal returns and you're doing nothing. All you're doing is signaling to the rest of the world that you're weak as piss and you've run out of ideas. What about QE? RBA QE is an oh, option. Oh, mate, in what? In UG boot terms? Do me a favour. No, sorry. No, you don't think it's an option? Well, what for? Like, what are you going to do? Well, what's that going to do? Like, honestly? If it's going to lower mortgage rates and like depress, no, that's, that's one thing. No, yeah, right. I, t- I take your point, but I don't think there's enough in it. And I mean, don't forget how many people you got living in this country 25 mil yeah all right i mean the, the, no the the beauty of why australia has been the lucky country and culturally that's a different story but why we've technically avoided a recession for 27 years and why we've gone through whatever we've gone has been the price elasticity of supply of the underlying core things that we're good at which is tourism education primary resources, right? So even if China slows down significantly, which they are and have done, they're not going to implode, but you can still be malleable enough to weather that. More to the point, the labor force has been incredibly flexible, which means that guys that through the mining boom were driving massive trucks out in Kalgoorlie and getting north of 300 grand a year for whatever, all of a sudden when that went bust, they shifted out to a cafe in Leichhardt and were, and were you know, pulling coffees or, or pouring beers at the local. So, yeah, I mean, WA went through a bust and, and whatever else, but there has been that overall natural stabilisation and ability to, to flow through. So, yeah, bring on the recession because some people need a kick in the head and the economy needs a bit of a kick up the bum. 
I, I don't mean to be glib about this because I know what a recession holds. I lived through Paul Keating's recession we had to have. I also paid 18% odd in rates. So I know people will lose their jobs, unemployment will go up, people, some people will fall on hard times. And I genuinely don't mean to be glib about this, but I do believe it's more likely to be a technical recession rather than full-blown. So, and what comes from that? Well, ra- you know, rational economic redirection of capital and investment. Yeah, uh, so like one of the things about a recession is it you know, cleans out the weaker it parts. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's designed yeah. to do. Um, Right. Um, so on that cheery note, um, <laughs> we, have, we, we have got to get going. Um, our guest this week on the show has been uh, Ken Vexler. Bloody hell, hang on. We're not ending on that, are we? No one's, the, people are really going to hate me. Where do you want to end? We can't. Oh, we can't, we can't weather's been great. Jesus, <laughs> you, can't, you can't end on that. We, I, I have to say, you're, you're, on Twitter, you've been you know, a bit more buoyant. Um, I think you should spend more time in Sydney. Mm. Yeah, but then I... No, no. I don't know, mate. This place Instagram post down at uh, Bondi oh, Icebergs will, uh, will no, sort you out nicely. This place has changed. Should you get on Instagram and just, you know, yeah, get a time no. at Icebergs? And, no, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> anyway. That's uh, better. It's been, look, it's been a great chat, Ken. Thanks so much for making the time. Um, Thank you. And uh, um, uh, I thought that was a, a really fun and insightful chat, and I hope um, our listeners enjoyed it. Two, uh, David, great having you on the show. It was a great chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ken. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We're on Twitter at uh, B-I-A-U-S. We're also individually on Twitter too. Ken's account is locked. Uh, you might ask to follow him and see if he'll let you in. Uh, be prepared. Um, okay, so uh, I'm Paul Colgan. Uh, we'll catch you next time.